this morning, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias al Evangelio según Marcos capítulo 14, versículos 12 a 26. This morning we'll be reading all, all the way through 26. Now in today's passage, a couple things. One, pay attention. Pay attention every, every Sunday, every time that we open up God's Word together. This is worth paying attention. These, these are the very words of God. Secondly, th- this is the kind of Sunday where you might want to take some notes. We're going to be diving into Scripture and really opening up one of the most brilliant moments in the history of the world. It is no exaggeration to say that today we will be diving into, being confronted with the single most important meal in history. That's no exaggeration. We're in Mark. We're in the last three chapters of Mark. We, we're, we're in the last 24 hours of the life of Jesus. It's Thursday, the day before Friday. Jesus takes one enormous step toward the cross in this moment. And I'm going to do something that, that I almost never do, even before we read the passage. I'm going to tell you what this is about up front. And then we'll tether it out from there. So if you're taking notes, write this down. The real elements of the Last Supper, the real elements of the Last Supper grounded the disciples' belief in the reality of the body and blood of Jesus given for them. The real elements of the Last Supper grounded the disciples' belief in the reality of the body and the blood of Jesus given for them. Yesterday, I saw a video, yesterday morning, I saw a video that captured my attention. It opened with a guy standing in the middle of a forest, and he's wearing a a VR headset, a virtual reality headset, And, and the video is showing him from the side and the, the video, it pans around to his front and zooms in on his face. And you slowly come to realize there's nothing in this headset. It's just an empty frame. And you're looking straight into his eyes and you realize this guy who's standing in the middle of the forest, he's looking with an unobstructed view at the forest. And then words come up on screen that says, introducing actual reality. And it's tongue in cheek. It's, 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 satiric, it's satirical intentionally. But there's a generation growing up who thinks that actual reality isn't enough. That it needs to be augmented by what's, what's on their cell phone or, or through a headset. That, that it needs to be intensified and made more real somehow, something better. But the, they're a generation full of, of people who have maybe never even seen the Yosemite Valley and Half Dome Peak and El Capitan, who never heard the roar of Niagara Falls as they stand next to it, who are maybe lacking very many real, meaningful human relationships, who've never 
laid on their backs 50 miles away from a large city and looked up into a moonless night sky and seen tens of thousands of stars with their naked eye. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever done that. As Christians, God has declared what is real. He has declared what is true. He has declared what what is central. He's declared what is good. He has declared what is beautiful. He has created and revealed reality. But aren't you tempted to think sometimes that you need something more? That you need something different? Than what God has said or what God has done? Or haven't you been tempted that, that God's truth and God's reality isn't enough? Or have you been tempted to, to over-spiritualize what is actually real? Or, or been led away from belief in what is real to believe something that may not be real? See, the disciples, they, they had seen demonstrations of the divinity, the authority, the power, the truth, and the grace of Jesus Christ. And through the bread and the cup, what, what we still practice in communion today, through the bread and the cup, Jesus tells them that his reality is as real as the bread in their hand. His reality is better than any other possible reality. And he's telling them that his reality is their reality. So with that, let's begin. Jump into God's word, beginning in Mark chapter 14, verse 12, ending in verse 26. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. His disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who was eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to one, to one another, Is it I? And he said to them, it, it is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. 
and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, bring us into this holy moment. This this moment, this meal, that that we can't understand to its utter depths, but we can understand it. We can understand what is happening here that sets the, the mode for what we continue to do today to understand what it means for our lives as Christians and to rejoice in it. Lord, I pray that that you would crash the reality of the cross of Christ into our lives in these next few minutes by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the Passover has begun. People have flocked into Jerusalem. The festival, the, the Passover festival has initiated and the, the whole city is abuzz. Like, like no other time of the year. And, and this is the day, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first day of Passover, which is the same day when the lamb traditionally in each household was slaughtered and eaten. And so the disciples, they naturally say, say to Jesus, and this is probably in the morning of Thursday, they say, hey Jesus, um, wh- where are we going to have this meal? I mean, I'm assuming we're not skipping this, this meal. It, that, that was out of the question. There, there was no Jew who skipped the Passover meal. So they say, hey Jesus, where, where are we going to have this? And Jesus sends them into the city in verses 12 through 17 to find a man carrying a jar of water who would show them to an upper room that had been reserved and designated for them to share the Passover meal with. This is very, very similar to Mark 11 when he sends them into a village to find a donkey that had been prepared, never been ridden, that the owner apparently already knew was going to be used for that purpose. This is Jesus' divine authority and sovereignty on display. And they sit down in that room in that evening, and to their utter dismay, Jesus says that one of them is going to betray him. And they look around and they go, who? Not, not me, right? Is it him? Is it him? Is it him? And Jesus says, it is one of you. And he says, woe to that man. It would have been better if he had not been born. Now, we could spend a lot of time on verses 12 through 21, but 12 through 17, this is, this is preparation. And, and we already saw this back in Mark chapter 11. And then 
These words of betrayal, boy, oh boy, we already saw the beginning of this betrayal set in motion last week with Judas as he accepted a payment of 30 pieces of silver for the life of the Savior. And then in the next couple weeks, we will see Jesus descend into the dark depths of loneliness as he experiences deeper and intensifying abandonment and betrayal by those who are closest to him. But our purposes this morning are really verses 22 through 26, what is traditionally called the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper, a a meal that was shared by Jews every single year for over 1,400 years. But this one, while being very much the same, was very, very different. But we have to first understand how it was the same. So here's the background, here's the context. If you're taking notes, this would be the time to really start taking notes. The background, the Passover began in the events that took place in the Exodus, 1,400 years before. And at that moment, Israel had been enslaved to the Egyptians for 400 years. And God sends Moses as his mouthpiece, as his instrument to go and deliver the Israelites. But Pharaoh resists. He says, no way. These people are way too valuable for me. They are my entire workforce. And so God demonstrates his divine power. and sends nine plagues on the Egyptians, which are his judgment on the Egyptians. But even after nine plagues, Pharaoh says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not giving up, I'm not giving way. So God prepares a tenth plague, a plague of death to every single firstborn in the land. But to the Israelites, God says in Exodus chapter 12, Verses 3 through 6, he says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, every man that is the head of the household, your lamb shall be without blemish, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, which was, which was this Thursday. It's the fourteenth day of the month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs, at twilight, and then they would eat that lamb along with other, uh, other food items that would become the Passover meal. And, and, and then they would, take, they would take a bundle of hyssop and dip it into a bowl of the blood of that lamb, and they were instructed to paint the doorposts of every Jewish household, of every Israelite household with the blood of that lamb, Right? And that would be the sign that the angel of death would pass over that household. And he did. And he did. God God preserved, he saved his people from the judgment of death in that moment. And the next day, through Moses, God led his people out of slavery. So, listen, it was a real event It was a real event demonstrating God's salvation and God's redemption of his people. 
That's, and, and, and you read in the Psalms, and the psalmists encourage the, the Hebrew people to look back to the Exodus, to remember that God is a saving God, which is why in Exodus 12, 14, just a few verses later, God says that this Passover meal shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast to remember that God is a saving God. That's the Passover. And for 1,400 years, every year that meal took place. So the meal that Jesus shares with his disciples, it is the very same one shared by Jews every year for centuries. But this one is also very, very different. Why? Look down at verses 22 through 24. And as they were eating, he took the bread, the bread that was shared at every Passover, Passover meal. He took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. Significant there. And he gave it to them. And he said, take this this bread, this is my body. And he took a cup, and there were several cups at the Passover meal, and he, t- he took one of them, full of wine, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this, this cup, this is my blood of the covenant. which is poured out for many. Why is this meal different? Because Jesus takes the elements of this meal and he says, they're about me. They're about me. They've always been about me. I don't think the disciples... There's no way, there's no way they understood what was going on in that moment. They might have looked back in hindsight and said, oh my goodness, but there's no way they understood the gravity of what was happening in front of them, what was unfolding in front of them. Notice, notice this, notice what Mark doesn't mention as part of the meal. What doesn't he mention? There's no lamb. It's the bread in the cup. Because the lamb was sitting at the table with them. He was in their midst. Listen, every every Israelite knew that the deliverance of Passover foreshadowed a greater deliverance. When God would deliver them from from slavery to sin. Because under the old covenant, under the law, there, there were There were ritual sacrifices all the time to atone for sin, but they just kept having to do more and more and more sacrifices because it only lasted for the the sins that that sacrifice was applied to. And so every year, more sacrifices. So they knew, and God had promised, there would be an ultimate Passover lamb, a better sacrifice that would deliver them from the judgment, not 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 of God toward the Egyptians, but of the judgment of, of death for sin. And every Israelite knew that there was a perfect lamb to come. Just listen to the prophetic words of Isaiah 53. 
And some of you know this passage. This was a prophetic passage looking forward into the future to a day to come. Verses 5 and 7. But He, this forthcoming Lamb, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth that's the forward looking prophecy of a better Passover lamb and this lamb was sitting right in front of them and Jesus is saying I am that lamb and did you catch it In Isaiah 53, did you hear those words? Crushed, wounded, chastised, oppressed, afflicted, pierced, slaughtered. Look at, the wor- look at the words of verse 22. As they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, broke it. Broke it. This is my body, broken for you. Verse 24, this is my blood, which is poured out. Listen, don't domesticate this scene. Don't domesticate this scene. Don't domesticate the cross. It is not domesticated. This is violent language. Just imagine, and I want to be careful here. Don't want to equate any, any person ever with Jesus, but just imagine if I stood up here one day and I said, tomorrow my body will be broken. My flesh will be torn. My veins will be opened up and my blood will be spilled. Can you imagine if I said that? It would be shocking. It would be, what, are you, what are you talking about? Wait, what's going to happen? What do, you, what do you mean? This is language of violence. This is, this is language suggesting death. This language suggesting a cross. See, Jesus had told them that he was going to die. Here he's showing them. He is visualizing in visual reality that his body will be broken, that his blood will be poured out. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. He's going to die, look at verse 24 at the end, for the many. It will be in the place of others. And and listen, not to diminish this, the disciples already knew that. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he said, for the Son of Man has, has... come to seek and save the lost and give his life as a ransom for what? For many. So they'd already heard that. But he picks up the bread and the cup and he looks them in the eye. And he says, you, take. You, take. You, drink. 
This is my blood for you. This is my body for you. He's saying, my friends, you are counted among the many. As you take this, receive the assurance, the wonderful, gracious assurance that, that not only am I dying, not only am I dying for the many, but you are counted among the many. My sacrifice is in your place. He's saying the reality of my divinity and authority and truth and grace, which I've shown you and you have seen, is real. And it's for you. This is your reality. Listen, when you take communion, this is so important, when you take communion, the same reality is being confirmed to you through the bread and the cup. That's what's happening. When you take those elements, it's a visual word to you, reminding you, confirming to you, affirming to you that you you are still counted among the many. Friends, hear the words of grace as you receive those elements. The reality of the cross is your reality, is what is, it, it is saying. And that's why we stress that, that if you're not a believer, if you haven't believed in Jesus, don't take this. Because this is a visual word saying, you are counted among the many. The body and the blood of Christ, which is broken and spilled, is for you. And so we take those elements together as a celebration of that personal work of Jesus that has become a reality for us. This is, this is your reality. But listen, it gets, it gets even better than this. Again, this is, this is the same Passover meal, but, but it's also very different. It's not just different, it's new. Look at verse 24. It says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is, is my blood of... <laughs> Of the covenant. Of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. Oh man. Again, the disciples, they just, in the moment, there's no way they get what's going down right here. Just like every Israelite knew that a a better Passover lamb was to come, every Israelite also knew that the old covenant was coming to an end. Someday, one day, it would come to an end. That the covenant that was regulated by the law that they couldn't keep, and they knew they couldn't keep. And that's the whole history of Israel prior to that point. is a history of Israel's inability to keep that law. Ever since God called them a people at Mount Sinai, for the next 1,400 years, they failed to keep the law over and over and over. And that was the old covenant. It was regulated by the law. But they knew that God would give them a new covenant, a new promise. How did they know that? How did they know that? Well, they knew Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Just listen. Listen intently to this promise. Just like Isaiah 53 is a promise, Jeremiah 31 is a well-known promise to the Israelite people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. He made it very explicit. When I will make a new covenant, 
not like the covenant that I made with Israel's fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. For this is the covenant that I will make with them. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive all their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. This is the new covenant. They also knew Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verse 26, which says of this new covenant, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This meal that's happening here, this is the last meal of the Old Covenant. It's the end. And again, the disciples are sitting here at, at, this, at this, this watershed moment of history, this transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. This is also the first meal of the New Covenant. And since you are counted among the many, this is what you get. This is what you get. You get full forgiveness of sins if you are counted among the many. You get a new heart. God will be your God and you will be his people and not just in a general broad sense, but every single one of you, a personal relationship with God will be achieved for you. God will write his law on your heart. And he'll give you a new heart. No longer a heart of stone enslaved to sin dead and unable to please God, but a heart of flesh with new desires oriented toward Him. This is your reality if you are counted among the many. If you receive these elements and you are counted among the many, this is your reality. A reality that you are assured of every time that you take the Lord's table together. And I want you to notice something else. In Luke chapter 22, verse 19, which is the parallel account, all three of the synoptic gospels record the Last Supper. And in Luke's account, Jesus says to them, he says, do this as often as you take this in remembrance of me. So he's pointing forward. He's saying, in the future, do this in an ongoing way in remembrance of me. Friends, there is one tradition. One tradition that Jesus instituted and commanded before his death to be done by his people in an ongoing way with no end except his return. One regular practice together that served to remember and it centers, that remembrance centers on what? The cross. It centers on his death. It centers on the cross. Listen, the cross is not, not only your reality, it is the central reality governing the life of every Christian. 
There is one thing that Jesus said, remember, do not forget. Above all else, make sure that you have a practice set in place so that you can remember that this is your reality. And what is that one thing? It is the cross. And listen, it wasn't his virgin birth. It wasn't his teaching. It wasn't his righteous life. It wasn't his resurrection. It wasn't his ascension. All of those are critical, non-negotiable realities of the life that Jesus lived and yet lives today. But one of those, he says, stands at the center of what we must remember. Why? Because the cross is where everything that Jesus said and did becomes for you. Apart from the cross, that is just a reality out there, but it actually has nothing to do with me. I'm still in my sin. I'm not united to, to God the Father. I'm not united to, to, to Christ and to his benefits and to, to everything, every gift that comes with him. I'm not united to the forgiveness that was achieved through him. It's just an other reality that has nothing to do with me. The cross is what brings the reality of Jesus Christ and the grace of God into our reality, which is why he says, do this as often as you take these in remembrance of me. Don't forget. Oh boy, oh boy. Here's the last thing I want you to see in this text. Look at verse 25. We haven't touched on this yet, but we also can't skip over this. Verse 25, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Listen, this is the last supper, (laughs) but it's not the final supper. This is the last supper of the old covenant. (laughs) But this is not the final supper. The first meal of the new covenant, friends, is an unfinished meal. Let that sink in. Every time that you take the bread and the cup of communion, you are participating in that yet unfinished meal. Jesus is saying, keep taking it. Keep eating that bread. Keep drinking that cup until that day when I drink it in the kingdom with you. There's another meal that's coming. And it's the finishing stroke of the meal that began before the cross here. It's a culminating meal. It's what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's described in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. I'm going to read it here. Follow along with me and listen closely. This is John speaking of of this day to come. He said, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude crying out, Hallelujah! 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now look back to verse 25. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day, that day, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The marriage supper of the Lamb, friends, you're invited. If you take those elements and you are counted among the many and you receive everything that is bound up in the new covenant, you're invited. You are invited. You will sit at that table with the King of Kings and raise a glass and toast to His glory in a sinless new heavens and new earth. Eating and drinking in joy that you have never known anything similar to in bliss, in in sorrowless happiness with the object of your heart's greatest desires, Jesus Christ, who died for you to be able to have a seat at that table. That is your future reality. That's your future. And that's not just spiritual illustration and imagery. you are in Christ, you will sit at that table. You will drink of that cup. You will eat with the Savior. And you will be with Him forever. Listen, the real elements of the Lord's table ground not just the disciples' belief, but your belief in the real and historic body and blood of Jesus given for you. The Lord's table, communion, when you take it, it's this declaration. This is real. This is actual reality. And the Lord's table, it it confronts our unbelief in what is real. So I want to finish with just quick application. I want to ask these questions, and, and some of these may apply to you, some of them may not, but, but once you just listen carefully, maybe even write these questions down, think on them, meditate on them, but five, five beliefs in unreality that the Lord's table confronts. Five beliefs in what is not real that the, Lord, that the Lord's table confronts. Make sense? The first of those. Do you have an over-spiritualized belief in the gospel? Do you have an over-spiritualized belief in the gospel? Here's what I mean by that. Do you really believe that you've been given a new heart and regenerated? Do you, do you really believe that you were really spiritually dead and are now really spiritually alive in Christ? Do you really believe that the marriage supper of the Lamb is your future reality? Do you really believe that you will sit at that table with Jesus? 
Do you believe that Jesus really died for your real eternal life in his real presence? Listen, just because something is, is spiritual doesn't mean it's not real. We exist in a, in, a, in a conflagration of the material and spiritual world, and it's all real. This is as real as it gets. Do you believe that this is as real as it gets? The bread and the cup tell you that the promises and experience of the gospel are as real as the fingers that hold the bread before you. Second question. Do you have a domesticated belief of your sin and its cost? Sin, judgment, wrath, the the cross, Jesus died for my sins, yeah, 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 all that, I get it. Listen, the bread tells the story that the real body of the real Son of God in human flesh was broken, bones shattered, flesh torn. The the cup tells the story that his blood was poured from the holes in his hands and his feet and his sides and the gouges in his back and the punctures in his forehead. And that he died the real death and suffered the real wrath of God that you really deserved. Do you believe that? Or do you have a domesticated, yeah, yeah, I know the gospel, I know Jesus and the cross and all that, whatever. And I'll just make one connection. Jesus' bones were not broken. That was a, that was a misstep. That was actually a prophetic fulfillment that his bones wouldn't be broken. But his body, nevertheless, was torn and broken for you. Third question. <laughs> this is where we get personal. Do you believe that the cross is, is not really for you? Do you believe the cross is not not really for you? You might feel unworthy. You might feel dirty. You, you, You might feel like you're too mired in the consequences of your bad choices, and they were bad choices. And I'm living in the shame and the ignominy of them. There's no way that the cross can actually be for me. But Jesus says, take. (laughs) He says, take. Without qualification. And the taking of communion symbolizes the real faith of someone who has believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as surely as you receive the real bread and the, and the real cup, so surely have you received real forgiveness when you've placed your faith in Him. That's what's going on when we take communion together. It's a reassurance that that is still true, that the cross is still true for me today as it was on the day when I first believed. Amen. Hallelujah. The cup we drink is a cup of grace, friends. There would be another cup that Jesus would drink later that night or would drink the next day that later that night he would look into and experience terror as he saw what he was about to drink. And that's coming next week. 
But the only reason that we share the cup of grace that the disciples drank is because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us. And so Jesus says, come, take. I've taken God's wrath in full for anyone who believes. Fourth, getting close to the end here. Do you believe the cross is of central importance? I was talking to somebody a couple months ago who had recently read a book called The Cross-Centered Life. It's a great book, small book, short book, love short books. And he said, I just can't get on board with this idea of the cross-centered life. I really think it's a resurrection-centered life. And I, get, I got where he was coming from, right? But remember, the cross is where everything that Jesus did and said became your reality. The resurrection life that was accomplished on your behalf isn't accomplished on your behalf unless the cross unless Jesus stood in your place on the cross and died the death you deserve to die so that you could have the life He alone deserved to live. The cross is the central reality governing the Christian life. Do you believe that? Communion tells us that is true. Fifthly and finally, last question here. Do you believe the cross is real enough for the realest problems that you face? Do you believe the cross is real enough for the realest problems you face? For those of you who are in the, the spring class uh, this, this past spring, in our last session together, we read this quote, and it, it's, it's poignant. It gets to the heart of something that exists in so many of us. Paul David Tripp says, are you ever tempted to believe the cross doesn't work in the real world? Sometimes we doubt that the grace of Christ is really powerful enough for a troubled and troubling world. The real problems. Sure, sure, the, the cross is helpful for that, that argument that I had with, with my spouse or, or that person. Yeah, it, it helps me to see that I need to be humble and to forgive. And, and sure, the cross is helpful when, when, I, when I'm struggling with anxiety just because, you know, I spent more money than, than I earned last month and, oh gosh, am I going to have enough money? And I remember that God is the provider. But the real problems? No. The real problems? <laughs> Those are too heavy for the cross. The bread and the cup reminds us that the cross is God's best solution to the deepest human problem. And if it is his best solution to your biggest problem, it is certainly big enough for every other problem. And that is true for those of you who have lived, <laughs> who have lived that by experience and experience a grace of God through Jesus Christ in the worst moments of your lives. It's in the real elements of the Lord's table. Ground your belief in the real and historic body and blood of Jesus given for you.
Let's end with verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So let's finish like them. Let's, let's actually take the Lord's table right now. And then we'll sing a hymn. And then we'll go out. Let's ground our story today in this story right now by taking the Lord's table and, and, and grounding our reality in the reality of the cross. So Jeff, would you, would you come up and lead us through the Lord's table?